And I think those little small things that you do can turn into really big things. There's so many times people ask, how do you become successful or what's happening? And it's never like this one big thing you ever do. And that's why no one can answer it. It's like all these like little tiny things that you do that create a relationship that matter. Welcome to Startupville, the show where we discuss what it's like to build a tech startup and a startup ecosystem in a small city. I'm Mike Wolsfeld, and welcome to the sixth of seven episodes in a special series on Uniting the Prairies, or UP Conference, hosted in our home city of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, in Canada in the spring of 2019. If you missed the first five episodes, check them out now. And remember to subscribe to the show so you don't miss out on the upcoming finale episode on why small cities are rocking tech. Today, we're talking about management insights from the top prairie tech leaders and expats. Welcome to Startupville. Startupville is brought to you by Innovation Place and Martin Charlton Communications. This series is made possible by Collabs, Canada's hottest new tech incubator, and the organizers of the UP Conference. Alicia Soulier is no stranger to entrepreneurship. She's run a successful salon studio for years. And now on top of that, she's the founder of SalonScale, a tech startup that solves a major problem for salon owners like herself. Alicia quickly realized that tech entrepreneurship is a whole different animal. But through her grit and determination, she's been able to grow her company to over 500 salon customers in just over a year. She's learned a lot over a year's time. So she shared her experience of a non-technical founder scaling a company faster than she ever thought possible. So I think um, some of the early stage discoveries um, were, you know, in, in the brick and mortar, you know, we could produce revenue from day one. So it was something that I was uh, familiar with. If we had a bill or something, it was about me producing another haircut, another color, and we could pay those things. Whereas in, you know, in tech, it was a lot of uh, burning into developing product and taking a lot of time before you can really sell those kinds of things. So that was one of the biggest uh, differentiators from a brick and mortar to tech. Um, and the other one is really the communication involved from brick and mortar to technology. Um, with, you know, you have to understand, um, in a salon, 90% of my staff were all the same um, same employee. So we are all doing the same thing, all the same visionary. So it's very easy to lead a group of people that all have the same um, understanding of how to perform their jobs. Um, and then entering into the tech sector, um, you know, you've got things from HR to development to, you know, any other type of leadership roles in there, uh, guiding those, um, those things on complete different mindsets and mind frames. And that was one of the hardest things for me was that, oh, you just, Oh, I had to pivot um, towards um, having a better, deeper understanding of the mindsets of other, other roles within the company. It's common for startup founders to have a technical background, but in many cases, especially so for salon scale, non-technical founders can approach a problem from outside the bubble of tech and find unique solutions no one else has noticed. This comes with its own set of problems though, and Alicia shared how she's approached it so far. Yeah, so when we look at it kind of like a roadmap, um, it's a messy roadmap <laughs> when you're first starting, especially non-technical. Non you know, um, you have to understand that I really didn't understand the languages of which my product was built on or the platforms. Um, and so when I'm sitting down and interviewing with talent, 
I didn't understand really what the resumes would result into the roles that they would apply into my business. So I spent a, a lot of times hiring maybe wrong people for the wrong roles. And, um, and with those little moments, I also had gifts through them. So what I did learn from there is I really trusted my instincts and my guts. And I think we, you know, that grit and that understanding, you really had to look in, into someone and, and find out what more value they add than not just the role that they do, but how can they build the culture in your, in your company? And how much can you get them to believe in the vision that you had? I know that I am on a mission to save a salon at a time, and I know some people will laugh at that out there, but the reality is, is that my vision was so big enough that it attracted the talent, and as soon as that kind of uh, traction came, you know, once we, once we hit the 200 salon sign up, to the 300 salon up, to recently hitting the 500 salon sign up, um, that, <laughs> and that being just North America, and the connections, you know, globally from Australia and, and New Zealand, and let's keep going on, but the reality was, once we had that traction, I felt confident as a non-technical founder to really engage in those conversations of, you know, what can you do and how more, like, return on investment here. Like, if I bring you in, how much farther can we grow? Because the worst thing I can do as your leader is invest some time in you and really not let you scale in the company. That's the worst thing I can do, you know? So uh, my biggest asset was the fact that I did have that strong vision, the mission, the belief. Um, and I just needed the right team. And when I started to really trust my instincts and set those stones, like those, those things happened. So that's kind of what we did. Salon Scale is just at the start of their journey on a lightning fast trajectory. Saskatoon-based Vendasta has been around the block a little longer, founded about 11 years ago. They've been on Deloitte's Fast 50 fastest growing companies in Canada for multiple years. So they've grown, scaled, and adapted to change many times. Their chief strategy officer, Jacqueline Cook, shared some of her learnings on how to tackle all of the challenges of managing and scaling a rocket ship like Vendasta. But going back to how do you scale a company, um, it's, it's not easy, but it is an exhilarating ride. It is, it is so fun because you get to work with um, some really, really brilliant people. And I think that's step one, is attracting the right people. Um, not just for the people that you're going to hire, but for the people around those people that you need um, to ensure that you, you maintain a culture and they inspire. A, a players attract A players, right? Um, the second thing in scaling a company, I would say, is, is giving them a team around them and the full resources to, to do the job and to do the job well. Um, we've gone through a number of organizational structures um, just to make sure that we are empowering a brilliant team with an awesome team to get um, a really exciting problem tackled. And that would be number three, is put an exciting problem in front of them. Um, people today don't want to be told what to do. Um, I don't want to be told what to do, and I don't want to hire people who want to be told what to do. But what I want to find is people who are so hungry and so passionate about solving a problem. And the best people are those that solve customer problems and are really excited about solving customer problems. Um, the fourth thing would be make sure they know enough about the company to make the decisions, especially on the front lines. Um, the rate at which we grew with Vendasta, it's, um, things are changing all the time, and it's not the companies who are the strongest or the bravest that survive, it's those that adapt to change. And in our market, things change at the speed of light. We've sort of stumbled upon what we thought were newspaper and agencies in solving their problems, and now we've kind of found an, ourselves into what's called the T-class TAM because we changed and we adapted, and we went from a MarTech solution to a platform and now to a cloud brokerage. So. 
um, making sure that you're adapting to change and giving people the right information on the front lines to not only make those decisions, but bring back that information throughout the organization so we're constantly adapting. Um, and then the last one would be just make it a whole lot of fun. Uh, I'm super excited to work, to go to work in the morning. Um, and I don't think anyone wants to go to work if it's a slog. So um, bring the right vibe in the atmosphere and keep going. Founded in Saskatoon, Picatick was recently acquired by one of the largest event tech companies in the world, in Eventbrite. Jayesh Parmar, co-founder and former CEO of Picatick, has been through every stage of startup growth and has outlined some key steps that any startup needs to get right if they're going to scale. He also laid out his strategy for how he was able to accomplish this with Picatick, and a lot of what it comes down to is finding the right people for the right challenge. It's kind of play off Michael Jackson, but uh, it's product team traction market and things that are important how to get there. First, you have to have a product that is disruptive and that's distinctive. In the early days, our product wasn't that. It was Me Too. Me Too means it was very copycat. It just wasn't, it wasn't there, mostly because we just, we just didn't have the time, we didn't have the, the developers, we didn't have whatever it needed in order to go out there in order to solve the problem correctly, but that's fine. So we got to make sure that we have that product in order. And then team. Team is super important. Your product's going to go out there in order to scale. At the beginning, it was all me trying to, hey, do you want to buy a watch kind of thing. Yeah, and I'm still selling watches, by the way. Uh, but then as we start going up there, we start leveling up. We start getting to a product that is good. So we now start to have to bring in people who are sophisticated, who have that information, who understand product uh, cost of acquisition, lifetime value churn, average revenue per user, who, who understand performance marketing, who, under, can, who can do cross-channel, who can understand attribution modeling. Right? And if, if that isn't something that you're thinking about, attribution modeling, or you're not thinking about some of these metrics, and, and you're not distilling right down to the unit economic, uh, br bring in somebody who can. Right? And so at that point, and the best thing that we do are able to do, so it's product team and traction is really understanding, and where you say traction is data. One of the best hires we brought in was a data scientist. Really understanding our traction. Now what, what happened was is our product, and you gotta understand like with, with, with Picatick and what we have is we have a huge taxonomy. Meaning is we have customers in different subsects and all over the place, but who do we serve well? And what's our sweet spot? Once we figured out exactly that we, we funneled in in terms of a, a market and we really drilled in, that's where we started going out there and understanding, okay, here's where we're gonna spend our money, here's our cost of acquisition, here's our lifetime value, here's our churn, here's our average revenue per user. We're gonna nail into this. We can't be everything to everyone, so it was really focused. And that led us to the market. That focus, that zeroing in. Once we were able to go out there and do that, the stories from, from investors were, it's, it's great. It's like we can go out there and we can show unit economics. We can go out there and not throw unit, uh, vanity metrics out there. It's real hard data. And then we can go out there and tell a story of how we can go out there and scale. And in our case, be acquired. Hiring the right people to solve the right problems is the best way for founders to ease the intense burden on the management team. But easing a million pound weight on your shoulders still leaves a lot for you to carry. Kevin Swan, VP Corporate Development at Solium, which was recently acquired for $2 billion, shared the unfortunate news that scaling your startup doesn't get easier over time. Yeah, it definitely doesn't get easier. Um, I'm actually, I'm still on a board of a few startups and we're at one right now that is just past that 10 million point. Um, 
and yeah, there's a ton of challenges, right? Um, to get our, and actually, it's solely, we just, I guess last year, you know, passed the 100 million point, and you hit problems there as well, right? So it never, it, you know, one of the misnomers with, with entrepreneurship a lot of times is like, and maybe you just have to tell yourself these things to just uh, just get by, but you just think, oh, as soon as I raise that next round, it'll be so much easier. As soon as I make that higher, it'll be so much easier. It never gets easier. Um, just gonna break it to everyone right now. Um, so you, you just actually end up just running into more and more uh, difficult problems. And you kind of get people in your organization that scale with the organization and some that don't. And the ones that don't, that's not a bad thing. Um, at, at Solium even, we have, a, we have a ton of people that are kind of, you know, senior managers, senior directors that have been in the company for many, many years um, that do tremendous work. Um, and then there's a few that are, you know, our CTO um, was an intern hire from university, you know, like 12 years ago when he just ascended through the organization over the years. Um, so you get, um, you know, you gotta find those people and really invest in them um, and move them up. But the reason I bring that up is that you hit, you hit walls with some people and you need to sometimes go find the one that has done it before. And I find that is, is much more in the functional side of things. Um, things like marketing, how to run a sales org, how to run at the very beginning, like the founders involved in all those sales, you have to under, there's a lot of kind of, um, it's almost like a Navy SEAL team that goes out and does, does sales. And that works up until 10 million, but then you need to scale it and you can't, you can't go and find another you know, five times uh, the number of Navy SEALs. You need to start building an army that can kind of operate in a more, um, you know, more kind of repeatable fashion. Um, and that just takes a different skill set and different people. So it, it's definitely a lot tougher when you, when you get larger. Um, the one thing I'll say that when you get to like the $100 million uh, mark is you, it really changes because by then you've kind of figured things out in terms of how to scale and how to grow and, and things like that. And it comes down to a lot more of the strategic decisions. Um, so I, you know, I do, in the last two works I've been, I've done a lot, it's very similar to Jackie actually in terms of the, the type of work um, on the strategy side, in that you now have all these resources and all these um, resources you have, and not just people, but you have customers and, your thing, and you think about how best to deploy them, right? And those are very different questions at the early days when you're kind of like, you know, scrapping away to, to get at like every inch. And so a lot of times when you get over that 100 million point, it's actually a lot more about like these very strategic decisions about moving into certain markets or building out a new product line or doing an acquisition um, that kind of make the mark in terms of how you get to like 200 and 300 million because just keep doing the same thing is just not going to get you there at pretty much every stage, right? On the topic of taking on new challenges with scale, Tiffany Kaminsky at SimEnd is learning some of those new and exciting challenges herself as they look to scale after raising capital. They're tackling those challenges head on, and she shared some of what they're doing to keep the waters at bay. We have a lot of challenges that we're facing right now. Um, I think our biggest one right now would likely be scaling. Um, we definitely took a different journey in terms of our growth path and taking on investment early. Um, we did our seed round, which my co-founder and I led with kind of the friends, families, and fools that jumped on board with us. Um, and then we did our, our late seed, and then we did our Series A, which we're actually closing next week to really accelerate our growth um, predominantly into the US. So we have to hire a lot of bodies very, very, very quickly. Um, which is one of the biggest challenges we're seeing right now, especially we're based in Calgary, trying to find tech talent, trying to find people with AI or machine learning or data expertise has been really, really, really challenging to find. Um, we're trying to really look at it from all angles in terms of the strategies to bring more people in. We're looking at um, some outsourcing options. We're bringing on recruiters to try to help people relocate to Calgary. Um, we're opening up offices in both Denver and Toronto because that's where we can find people. 
Um, so we're taking kind of a couple different uh, approaches to try to mitigate that risk, but that's really been one of our biggest challenges right now is just our ability to scale. And I think with goes hand in hand with that is as our clients kind of come on board is being able to scale how we onboard these large enterprise clients, they're, they're beasts. There's a huge um, amount of energy and resources that go into getting each one of them off the ground. So being really, really realistic about our expectations and how we're setting those. So if we close, you know, we kind of have five sales coming at once. We need to be able to be really realistic as here are going to be our delivery dates. This is when we can get stuff launched by just to make sure we can really do it flawlessly, even if it means pushing out when we'll actually have those revenues come in the door. A common thread here is the importance of hiring the best people to solve the hardest problems in your startup. Coconut Software is a Saskatoon-based startup that recently raised their Series A round of funding led by one of Silicon Valley's top investors, Neil Dempsey. They've been able to raise high-profile capital and sign some key heavy hitters for critical roles in their company. Coconut founder and CEO Catherine Renier gave some insight into exactly how they've accomplished this. I think the one thing that is underutilized uh, repeatedly, and I've seen this through different programs I've been through, is how little people just pick up the phone. Yeah. Just pick up the phone and create a relationship. So there's actually two stories, I'll be super quick. Dave and I had met when we were doing our seed round, and Dave said, you know what, Catherine, you're a bit early. I really like Dave, we connected. We stayed in touch for about a year, and when it was time, I like to think, Dave, you thought it was a no-brainer. Yeah, th yeah, there's more was. to that. Okay. <laughs> so, so VCs, whether you know it or not, and we're going to talk about fundraising, that's something I want to finish off on. We take notes, even though it might look like we're not listening or not paying attention or droning out, we're taking notes about everything that you're saying. So Catherine came in and she was, you know, just started the company, wasn't doing any revenue, and she said, I'm going to go away and I'm going to do X in revenue in my first year, and I'm going to come back and you're going to write me a check. And every time we hear that, that entrepreneur goes away and does something completely different, like gets nowhere close to, her, to his or her goal. Catherine came back and like stuck the landing on her goal. So now, now she's got my attention. So I had no choice. Am I going to write money behind a CEO? Like, absolutely. A founder like that? Absolutely. Yeah. So. And I think a good part of it is a lot of times um, you're looking for talent, you're looking for investors, and people don't understand how important that relationship is. Another example is our CRO, Mark Ramsey. I had first met with him. I could not afford this gentleman. I was totally wowed by his expertise, and I thought, wow, like, this is really impressive. And he spent an hour with me. And I went out and he was, I walked into the office he had worked at and everyone there was maybe in their 20s, crumpled t-shirts and khaki shorts and flip-flops and he comes out in a suit and I'm like, what is the deal? <laughs> um, but he taught me a lot about the sales process and, and whatnot. And so I was really impressed. And so I went out to Harry Rosen and I bought him a tie and I wrote a handwritten note and said, keeping the guy that wears the tie in the office, because that was just who he was. What was interesting is that at a point in time a year later, we had raised money and there was an opportunity to work with Mark. He kept that note on his desk and he said, hey, like, there's this opportunity. And I think those little small things that you do can turn into really big things. There's so many times people ask, how do you become successful or what's happening? And it's never like this one big thing you ever do. And that's why no one can answer it. It's like all these like little tiny things that you do that create a relationship that matter. Part of Coconut's strategy for hiring employees has been making the hard decision that many small city startups make, to open their first big city satellite office. 
We are firm believers in the advantages that small and medium cities present for startups. But that does not mean that major tech hubs have nothing to offer. If you can leverage the talent and capital from major hubs and retain the culture and advantages of your small city headquarters, you'll create a killer growth combo for your startup. Well, it's really interesting because um, when we first went and raised money, uh, there was a lot of pressure to say you should have your offices in Toronto. And, and rightfully so from an investment standpoint where there's a lot of talent, there's been more spin-offs of successful companies. And then you have entrepreneurs like we are on stage here saying, hey, no, we can do it here too, but maybe we have this extension that allows us to tap into a certain market. Um, I think regardless of geography, which, you know, we were actually at one point at, at, and um, just certain mentors said, wow, that's really hard, don't do that. And I was like, try me, we're gonna do it. <laughs> so you sometimes just have this, no, we can prove, prove certain things wrong. Um, but I think with the team, uh, with the geography is really a time investment. Uh, Jordan and I happened to be on the same flight to Toronto just last week and you know half of his team is in Toronto one week and the other half is in Saskatoon the other week and I think that just goes to show the dedication that you need because regardless of where you're located um, there's a few things that need to happen in building a team and it doesn't matter if it's in tech, it doesn't matter if it's in corporate, uh, probably doesn't even matter if it's a, a, a VC firm that you're launching. Um, I make uh, all of our leadership team, I read a lot of books and I get excited and then I make them read that too, which they're probably super annoyed with, but that's okay. Um, and I even had to make the board read this book, which was the five dysfunctions of a team, which we like to say is the five functions of a team. And really the first step is you need to have trust. You need to have trust amongst your executives. And how do you have trust? You need to get to know them. You need to align yourself with the values, the mission, the vision. That's step one. Because if you don't have trust, you can't really get to the next step. And the next step is healthy conflict, which is can you um, challenge each other on different things? And I know in Jordan's company they call this radical candor. So can you really speak the truth to each other? And if you can't do that, you can't hold each other accountable. And if you can't hold each other accountable, you're not gonna achieve the results you want to. So we really look at this pyramid of success. So regardless of the team, we need to have trust. We need to have alignment, which is not that easy. Uh, when you have two different offices, but it can be done. It's just a lot of hard work and a lot of communication. And you really have to put, go above and beyond than maybe if you were all centralized in, in one location. But I think a lot of us up here are proving it can be done. Uh, but I think those are just the foundational elements of whenever you're building a team that we really need to look at. Scaling and hiring team members by the dozens is exciting. But sometimes, even for successful companies, things go the opposite way, and you need to gracefully let go some employees for the long-term health of the company. Michael Skizens, founder and CEO of CareerList, learned one of his hardest lessons when one of his earlier startups ran out of runway, and they had to lay off their entire team. This was an incredibly difficult time for Michael, but it helped him learn some incredibly important lessons about how to get things right the next time around. My answer is it's never going to go well, um, and it's always it's always going to be hard. And even on the first you know the first version of it, even because we, we obviously didn't go to zero overnight, um, you know went down in stages. I messed up I messed up a lot of things. The first thing was a you know a lack of transparency. People were not clear with where where the company was. Um, that lack of transparency was promoted by me. Um, it was also promoted by our investors. 
because they didn't want me telling anybody. They, like, I had to be out there going, crushing it, you know, all the time. And that, I think maintaining the balance between that um, is hard. So, you know, the solution to that transparency is our reports and our company are 100% transparent now for every employee to see at any point in time. Um, so outside of cash and equity, but like our roll-ups, our cash flow, our sales, there's a Google Drive that if you work for us, you can see every part of that data and you can do your own analysis. Um, I will talk about our runway in our weekly meeting every, every week and I'm very clear about that. Um, so transparency solved, I think, a lot of it. I think the second question is really how, how you treat people through the process. Um, and if you, if you aren't in the same, if you're not vulnerable throughout the situation and you're not in the same camp as it and you're like, I'm a CEO, sorry, we gotta let you go. Wish you well, here's a box, get your shit. have a good day. Um, it doesn't go well. But I'm not even gonna joke to you, this is what your lawyers are gonna want you to do. Because everything that you say, every action that you take especially in America, because everybody wants to sue you all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, every action that you take is, is everything that you say can be used against you, right? And um, I think figuring out what that means for you to really take, take care of people through the process and you know, how I would do that differently now would be even when we shut down, what I should have done is spent my, you know, my next three months, I was still dealing with the lawyers for the next year, um, but what I should have done is spent the vast majority of my time helping those people find what's next and using my network and using our customers to help them find jobs. Um, I think the third thing when you have to go through that is people wait too long. And you wait until your last second to take, to take effort, to take, to take effect. So our runway is in effect today, so we're going to take, you know, we've, we're down to three months, so we're going to take action today on that. The challenge when you do that is, one, you don't have time to help people. Two, you've waited too long, so you're actually in trouble and you're gonna be scrambling to get cash. The time to take action when you're at a runway is like six months, eight months, nine months in advance to take those actions, which buys you a lot more time because instead of it being a sudden action of saying, I need you to, here's a box, I need you to go get your shit and get out, you can say, hey, we're gonna have a runway problem. We have a runway problem. So I'm gonna need you, I, I don't think there's a role for you at 60 days from now. I'm gonna work with you to help finish stuff out, transition stuff, the team. I'm not firing you, I'm gonna make these 10 phone calls and I physically have the phone calls you're gonna make written out, hand it out, help the person find them out. They've got a job for 60 days, you're helping your team and you go through that. I think those are the type of efforts that leave the rest of the team saying, prepared to go into the darkness of night, knowing that the company has six months of runway because they've seen what's happened with you as a leader when you know, someone else went into that and didn't make it out the other side of the forest, but at least they saw them get taken care of. Thanks to the hard lessons Michael has learned in multiple startups and multinational firms, he's been granted the wisdom to dismiss some of the commonly held management myths out there. One of the key myths he discovered was the idea of the all-knowing, overconfident leader. So to close this episode, here's Michael sharing his wisdom on how his prairie roots played a role in how he came to those conclusions. Last thing I'd say is I think culture really, you know, my learning has been culture really comes from vulnerability. So, um, you know, rightly or wrongly, uh, I'll give you my un 
unfiltered reality of, you know, I, when I grew up here, um, I would read Donald Trump books on leadership and management. I'm not kidding, you know? I would go to McNally Robinson and like, like whatever, and you know, I'd watch TV and I would think that this is, you know, I loved The Apprentice when it first came out. Um, and you know, other, it's not just him, there's a lot, and I thought that that was the you know, leadership style. Um, I think the right leadership style to build a culture today is much more around uh, you know, transparency and vulnerability, um, where you're not standing up in the room, you're not acting like you're, you know, it, it's pretty, pretty level and pretty, everyone kind of has a very similar voice. You're much more of a, you're much more of a coach and a collaborator than you are, you know, a, a super strong kind of dictatorial leader. Um, no one wants to work for a dictatorial leader, no matter how much work you do on culture, if you're a dictator, your culture will be shit. Um, so finding that vulnerability, I think, and finding that leadership style within that open and honest, vulnerable state where, you know, I'll ta start meetings with, here's why I couldn't sleep last night. You know, I was really worried about this, and I don't know why this isn't working, and I don't know how to solve it, and I don't know what, I don't know what to do, guys, but that's all I know. I don't have a solution. Um, and then the team will take that and talk about it. But the previous version of me would have been like, we don't have a problem, like, I'm going to solve it. I'm going to give the team the answer to that. So I think the vulnerable leadership style um, definitely does build much stronger teams and cultures, and that's universal. It, you can build a culture, you can build a company being that dictator, raise money, do all that stuff. But you're going to crash and burn and pay, die a horrible, painful death. You're probably going to get depressed later when you realize you have no friends um, and no one wants to hang out with you. Um, so you're going to have to go back. I think if we look at lots of the leaders, of the, even the great you know, Canadian companies, I was with the Shopify guys um, two nights ago uh, in New York having dinner. You know, humble, smart, driven, great. Um, and you know, they, could, they could be totally the opposite, but they are literally you know, so interested in what they're building and they care about their people and they're talk, having these same conversation we're having about culture was the whole conversation at the dinner. But like maintaining that vulnerable, like what I'll call Saskatchewan work ethic, and that Saskatchewan humility is the most important thing in maintaining and building a culture and building a successful group of which you know, the people in this room, I'll include Alberta and Manitoba, I just realized I'm overcompensating Saskatchewan because I'm from here. Um, like that Western Canadian value is like the most important thing that you cannot learn, but you've learned by being around here and living here. I think we'll make sure your culture, um, you know, for whatever company you build, is is um, you know is successful. Startupville is brought to you by Innovation Place, helping grow the tech sector in Saskatchewan, Canada, and is produced in partnership with Martin Charlton Communications at WeTellYourStories.ca. This series is made possible by Collabs, Canada's hottest new tech incubator, and the organizers of the Up Conference. Our show is produced by me, Mike Wolsfeld, and our host, Dan Gold. Our theme music is from GG Riggs and Reactor Production. Learn more about us and our guests at innovationplace.com slash startupville and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Startupville Pod. See you next time on Startupville.